Welcome to Living Waters. My name is Josh, preaching pastor at church. Glad that you are here with us. Um, I see some guests and new people, and we're very thankful that you guys are all here. And I uh, hope you have a wonderful time worshiping Christ with us this morning. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, that's where we're going to be this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open it up to 1 Peter 5. And as we go there, I need to tell you a, a joke that I heard from Jeff Foxworthy when I was a kid. So there was this joke that Jeff Foxworthy told. I've learned since that it's kind of a universal truth. A lot of people know this story. But as a kid, I didn't know about it, and it, it took me a bit to get it. But it's the difference between involvement and commitment. And the story goes like this. The, the little kid sits down at the farmhouse for breakfast, right? And she's like, Dad, this breakfast spread is awesome. I mean, we got toast, we've got eggs, we've got pancakes, we've got bacon. We're really excited. We should thank God for all the animals that are involved in getting us breakfast. And so the, the farming dad looks at his little daughter and he says, Oh, sweetheart, I love your heart in this. This is good. Can I just distinguish some things for you? The chicken was involved in breakfast, but the pig was totally committed, right? You're welcome. I'll be here all night. Tip your waitress. But many of us, there's a difference between involvement and commitment. And we would all say that in our lives, in different areas of our lives you can be involved in something and not be committed to something. And so as kids, we all grew up, if you grew up churched, singing the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. And then you would ring out the chorus, at least the girls would. Can I get an Amen. All the boys in Sunday school class are not singing that for $10 million. But the girls are belting it out. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. As we grow up, we sing Jesus loves me. But once we see what life is really all about, we wonder if Jesus really loves me. Do you know what I'm saying? Because we start to doubt as adults. Does Jesus really love me? Yes, does Jesus love me? We begin to doubt because we say things like this. My dad has COVID. And I don't know if he's going to make it through, right? We say things like that. We say things like, my friend has cancer and they have a very large family to take care of, and I don't know how they're going to do it. For some of you this morning, some of you are saying this, I have cancer. And nobody knows about it yet. Does Jesus really love me? Some of you might be saying, I had a messy divorce. And it was awful and nasty. Does Jesus love me. Some of you might say, I lost my job 
and I don't know how I'm going to pay bills. Does Jesus love me? Just this week, I had someone call me as a pastor and share a lot of burden. And they said, Pastor, am I a burden to you? Is this too, am I burdening you? I don't want to burden you. And as a pastor, I'm like, no, you're not burdening me. This is the calling of God on my life to pray for you. But that same individual said, well, God feels very distant to me right now. So here's two truths that the Apostle Peter is going to say right off the top in 1 Peter chapter 5. And it may sound ridiculous for you to hear this, but God reigns over your trial. Praise God. And he's working in your trial and he is for you in the midst of your trial. You see, God is not only involved, he is for. He's not just involved in your life, he's for your life. What's the difference? Well, the difference is a lot like news reporters at the state track and field meet versus psycho parents and teammates at the state track and field meet. News reporters are involved with the runners in that they are getting familiar with all the racers and their names and the schools that they're from and the times that they get so that they can write articles and they can tweet about it on social media and they can inform the masses for their job. That's a little different than parents, God bless them, I'm also speaking to yours truly, yes, and teammates at a state track and field meet at Drake Stadium, all full. You know the parents from the reporters. You can distinguish the two because one's quietly taking notes while the other one is like, go, go, run, my little nugget of running, you know, joy, run. One group is involved. Another group is for. Does that make sense? So as First Peter closes and the Apostle Peter talks to us this morning, he is telling us, that God is not just involved with his people who name the name of Jesus. God is not just involved, he is for. He is for you and for me if we name the name of Christ. God is for his people, especially when those people suffer for the name of his son. God is for his sons and daughters. Now this might beg the question, how do I know? How do I know if God is really for me? How do I know that he's really in my corner? How do I know that God, what evidence is there that God cares for me? Well, Peter is going to give us four evidences that God is for you. Four evidences that God is for you. Number one, the first evidence that God is for you this morning is that he cares for you. Verse 6 and verse 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, 
so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humble yourselves means to get yourself low, to get down underneath. Now, if you're humbling yourself as a Christian, you're getting down underneath God. All right, that's a humbling thing, to get underneath God. And you're getting underneath the mighty hand of God. So to humble yourself means that you don't exalt yourself in pride. It also means that you don't have a false humility. Have you ever run into somebody who has false humility? False humility, we've all done it. Oh, don't look at me, don't look at me. I'm nothing, I'm zero. Okay, look, that is just pride in disguise. Can I get an amen? Like, like the more you do that, the more attention you actually draw to yourself, which is a backdoor way to get to pride. Okay, so pride is sometimes out there and really vocal. Pride is sometimes very inward. Humbling yourselves in God's eyes is simply putting yourself underneath the mighty hand of God. You're just you. God is God. And you are simply putting yourself under his mighty hand. Did you know that humility is the number one evidence that you are genuinely a follower of Jesus? Did you know that? If you don't have humility in your life, you can say all the things you want to say, but it, it's the number one evidence that you're probably not a Christian. Because a true Christian, the number one thing that flows out of their life is humility. So church, the first question for you this morning is, are you humble? And are you humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God? Do you know who has a mighty hand? Not you and me. Can I get an amen? Man, our hands are so weak. We try to do all these things with our lives and we try to manufacture stuff. Our hands are not strong. God's hand is strong. Can I get an amen? So humility is coming underneath the mighty hand of God. For what reason? So at the proper time, at the right time, at the exact right moment, God will exalt me. So if you're really humble, you're going to humble yourselves under God and you're going to wait. Isn't that the hardest thing to do in this life? Wait on God? We got to wait on him? God, what do you want me to do? Nothing? Yes, do nothing. But I don't want to do nothing. I want to do something. And God says, you must do nothing and wait for my hand because at the exact right time, I will come and deliver you. Okay? At the right time or the proper time, he will exalt you. And then verse 7, what do we do in the meantime? We are to cast all of our anxieties on him. So, are you bored while you wait on God? No. You are to be casting your anxieties on him. This word means to actively throw upon. So you are actively taking your anxieties, your worries, your fears, and you are putting them on God's shoulders. That's what you're supposed to do while you're waiting, while you're walking in humility. You are to be busy throwing your anxieties on God. Mainly, this happens through prayer. So Christians, you can't be bored. If you're waiting on God, I have a job for you to do. Peter has a job for you to do. Pray. Pray constantly. Pray in faith. Pray in community. Look, we have a, we have a group at church called Prayer Group. 
If you haven't joined that on Planning Center, you should. Request to join that prayer group. I'm telling you, the last three weeks, we have been throwing requests at God, and God has been doing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle through prayer. We have seen COVID healed. We have seen someone pulled out of the ICU in a miraculous story. And we have seen all of this happen through the prayers of the saints of God at Living Waters. And I want you to be a part of that. That is what we're supposed to be doing. If you are struggling with depression and anxiety and you're like, Pastor, that is me. I am struggling post-COVID with anxiety and worry and fear and I just can't get out of my own head, I am inviting you to come into what Jesus says will be a very blessed thing. Come into the prayer room. Because in that, you will pray and you will see God work. Now, why should you pray? Because God cares for you. As you pray, you are believing that there is a God in heaven who cares for you. And the word there, cares, means that God is concerned about you. He actually cares. He loves you. He sees you. He cares for you as a Christian. It's within his character to do so. Seven billion plus people on the earth and God cares for you. Christian, do you believe that? I mean, seven billion people on the earth and he is concerned about your anxieties and what you're bringing into your prayer room. This should blow your mind that the God of the universe has compassion for Christ followers who are coming to him saying, God, I don't have the resources. And God's like, I know, I care, and I'm thankful you're in the room. So to summarize, point number one, he cares for you. We humble ourselves, trusting God to make things right. And as we wait for God's perfect timing, we put things on God's shoulders and we do all of this because we know through Jesus, he cares for us. That's evidence number one that God is for you. Evidence number two is that God not only cares for you, he prepares you. God is for you, he prepares you. Verse eight and nine. Be sober-minded, Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter says, be sober-minded and be watchful, which means be calm and alert. Okay, be calm and alert. All right, put your head on a swivel. Like many of you, after your first, what, 10 cups of coffee? After the 10th cup. How you feel after the 10th cup. That is what Peter is saying. Be calm and watchful. Like your head is on a swivel. Don't panic. Some of you struggling with panic? Have you had panic attacks this week? Late at night? Early in the morning? You've had some panic stuff going on? This command says, don't be panicked. Do not give in to panic. Keep your head on a swivel. Be aware. One of my old football coaches would say at practice, boys, keep your head on a swivel on the football field because if you don't, you're going to get your head ripped off. Nothing like the warm encouragements of a football coach. Amen? 
Don't get panicked. Don't get worked up. Keep your head on a swivel spiritually. Why? Why should Christians be aware of what's going on around them? Because you're, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil is walking toward you, literally, he's walking toward you with a powerful roar to scare you as a Christian. Can I get a witness? Has that ever happened to you? Lions are loud and powerful. Okay, so it's the noise of Satan's roar that often makes Christians pull back and want to run away. I got two stories from South Africa to illustrate this. First story from South Africa. A year and a half ago, we're walking, I'm walking down a pathway to go to the shower house. On this pathway is a very thin fence. On the other side of thin fence is lionesses and lions. And I'm walking to the shower house. It's 7.30 in the morning. And what do my little eyes see but a lioness looking at me? And so I got a little nervous. And every, you know, three or four steps, I would just kind of look over. She's still looking at me. Three or four steps, look over. She's looking at me. And once I determined that this was not a romantic look... I got really nervous. So I walked 10 steps without looking, right? Like I'm just going to walk. I'm not looking over there. And then this sheer terror entered into my body. And it was instinct. I felt like I was going to die soon. I turn around and sure enough, this lioness is on a boom, 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 coming straight at this fence. And I am like, I am going to die. I would like to say in that moment that I stood firm. But that would be a massive lie and I'm not supposed to sin in church. So I ran and screamed for my life. That's what I did. Second story of South Africa. This was many years ago. We were on a safari, and we were in between two fields. One field was a tiger field, and one field was a lion field. And so we're walking, and as we're walking, our tour guide says, Hey, just a heads up, there's a little tension this morning between the tigers and the lions. A tiger busted through the, the, uh, the fence and, and went into the lion's field. The lions surrounded them as a good pack does and they mauled the tiger last night. Oh, that's cool. Do you make these fences any thicker? That's what I kept thinking. <laughs> thin fence. I don't know what it is about South Africa and thin fences, but they're all thin. I don't think they stop anybody, really. So we look up and the tigers are over here. 60 yards away, there's a whole tribe of lions. They're just sitting up there. Pride, I think is what it's called. And we're a hundred yards down the hill. And there's some tension. One of the tigers gets a little close and one of the lions, like the big male alpha lion stands up, perches up on the rock. And it is like replay of the, of the Lion King. I mean, it was like, oh, this is awesome. 
But he let out this roar. To this day, I will never forget it. Loud, powerful, felt like it shook the ground and the, the hairs on my arm went tingly straight up. I've never been more frightened and in love at the same time. <sighs> I share those stories with you because that should give you a picture of what Satan is like. He is like this enemy that we have that is loud and scary and his roar makes your soul want to retreat and run away. It's often the noise of Satan's roar that scares believers away from Jesus. So what is the solution? Peter says, resist him. Firm in your faith. Stand your ground against the roaring lion called Satan. What? Say, I mean, we're to stand our ground, Peter? I mean, what in the world? Peter says, stand firm. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he rules and reigns over everything that you see and know and understand. He is the one to fear, not Satan. Amen? Stand your ground. You can almost hear Peter in the Colosseum saying to fellow Christians who are on the Colosseum floor about ready to get eaten by lions, stand firm. Don't renounce Jesus. As 20,000 people cheer on your death, Christians, stand firm on the Colosseum floor as the lions come after you to tear your flesh apart because you won't denounce Jesus. You can almost hear him saying that. So Christian, God is preparing you and me to stand and resist Satan. We are to stand and resist. As we walk through our trials and tribulations for Christ, we are not to think that we should do this amazing offensive ninja move that takes Satan out. You don't need to be a spiritual ninja. You just need to stand your ground. Amen? In this day and age, in America, it's, our, it's a prayer for my, for my heart, for our church. It's a prayer for our society as a whole. Christians, you don't need to go do something heroic for Jesus this week that gets all the social media attention. All you need to do is stand firm. Know your doctrine, know Jesus, and stand on it. Don't run away. Too many Christians are running away these days. Stand firm. God is for you. He has prepared you for this moment. Evidence number three, that God is for you. He restores you. So not only does he care for you and prepare you, he restores you. Verses 10 and 11. It says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So here's, here's some good news right away in verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, Suffering Christian, hear me out. Your suffering is temporary. Praise God. Your suffering, is, it has an end date on it. It just feels like it's eternal. When you're suffering, it just feels like it'll never end. But it says, after you have suffered for a little while, there's an end date on your suffering. So, 
the God of all grace, after your suffering, he will come and he will restore. Now he's called the God of all grace. Grace is goodwill, kindness, the merciful kindness of God that he pours out upon sinful men. And by holy influence, God, by grace, he, he brings people to Christ through grace. Amen, right? None of you earned your way to heaven. You are there by grace. You're walking now by grace. And God, through his grace, he will increase your faith until you go meet Jesus. So the God is the God of all grace. God is not a God of law. God is not a God of rules. God is not a God of, of, of all these bad things. God is a God of grace and Christian, whether you're entering into a trial whether you're in the trial or whether you're exiting the trial, it's the grace of God that is going to carry you. Amen? So think about what Paul said to, or Jesus said to Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. God is the God of grace and his grace is sufficient. The next phrase, he will himself restore, okay? Will himself. You can circle that in your Bible. It means that God is not delegating his ministry to suffering Christians to someone else. Praise God. If he sees you suffering in Christ, God is on it himself. He's not delegating it to the vice president of, of global operations in heaven saying, hey, would you go down and take care of Josh? Would you go down and take care of Craig and Tom and John and Dave? Would you, go, would you go down there? I don't have time to get down into their lives and pour myself into them. I don't got time. I'm too busy. I'm a CEO. Aren't you glad God's not a CEO? He said he himself will come down. God himself will come down to believers in Jesus when they need help. God is the God of all grace. So if he sees a son or daughter of his struggling, God's going to be there. He is for you. What's he going to do? He's going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Okay, let's go through those things. Restore. God is going to literally mend what is broken. Have any broken sinners here this morning? Broken? You know what God's promise is? If you are suffering and broken in Jesus, God will come and mend what is broken. God will come sew together what has been ripped apart. God himself is going to do that for you. If you hang on by faith, God's going to mend what is broken. He will make stable or confirm what is wobbly, okay? So the idea here is that God is going to come like a brace for a knee. Your knee, any wobbly knees, right? God's going to come in, he's going to put a brace on, and he's going to make that wobbly knee solid again. Can I get a wobbly knee? Amen. Yeah, come on now. He's going to make stable what is wobbly. He's going to strengthen, which means he's going to make strong that which is weak, God is going to come in and he's going to get you in the spiritual weight room and you are going to go lift weights and get strong, you who were weak. He will establish you, which means he will set you on a foundation where there was only open grassland and gravel. 
God will pour a foundation that is sure and strong, and he will do that because God is personally interested in you being restored after your season of suffering. These are amazing things, and this is what God says. He says, I'm the God of all grace. I will restore you. I will do it. I will see to it, and don't be intimidated that I don't have enough resources for you. I've got all the resources I need to restore your soul. Amen. Amen. I think one of the great lies we tell ourselves is we look at our situation and we say, well, God cannot restore me. My, My life's too messed up. I've sinned too many times. I'm too broken. There's no way God can restore my situation. God says, no, no, no. I'm the God of all grace. If you think that you're going to come to me by faith and I'm going to somehow run out of resources, you got another thing coming. God is not Chick-fil-A running out of Chick-fil-A sauce. Can I get an amen? (laughs) No. God has limitless resources called grace to restore, strengthen, confirm, and establish you in the trial and after the trial. Praise God. Jesus is such a good example here. In John 21, he personally restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes Peter on the beach. Do you remember this? He personally did it. He looked in Peter's eyes and he says, I'm going to restore you. No doubt Peter is thinking about that scene as he's writing this to you and me today to say, look, God did it for me. Jesus did it for me. He came and he found me and he looked me in the eyes and restored me to ministry. God will do it for you. Jesus sees you and me. He is for you. He restores you. The final evidence that God is for you is that he sustains you. Verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written you briefly, exhorting and declaring, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter says this is the true grace of God. What I'm telling you is the very true favor and grace of God Almighty. In one sense, I think Peter is knowingly recognizing that he's writing scripture. What I'm writing to you is the grace of God. He's inspired by God to write this letter. Secondly, I think he's saying everything I've said about Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, and suffering is true. Stand firm in this grace. So the idea from Peter is don't let anybody move you off of grace. Amen? Now look. If this is the true grace of God, you've got to stand in it. Don't let anybody move yourself out of it. The worst thing that you can do, the most dangerous thing you can do in the Christian life is to get away from the grace of God. Once you get away from the grace of God, you will struggle. You will, you will get lost. You will get into a dark place. But as long as the grace of God is true and you're standing in it, you have hope. Don't let anybody move you off the grace of God in your life. Amen? Don't let anybody move you off your testimony. Don't let anybody move you away from the cross of Christ and what he's done for you. Don't let anybody move yourself off the grace of God. Can I say this? Especially yourself. Don't let you talk to you 
about getting you away from the grace of God. Isn't it true that the biggest enemies that we face are not out there, but normally within us? John Piper said this. He said, true grace does not lead to lawlessness or licentiousness. True grace is both pardon so that we can survive and power that we can stand. God is for you, church. He will sustain you. Stand firm. God is not just involved in your life. He is for you. He is for you. How do I know this? How do you know this? God is for you. And if you're doubting it this morning, look at the cross. You think God is just passively involved? God sent his own son to die on a cross. That is not involvement. He is for us in that he sent Jesus to die our sin death and to rise again. You don't think God was pained in heaven as he watched his own son hang there on the cross? Don't tell me God doesn't understand you. Don't tell me God doesn't, you know, isn't for you. God sent Christ to die for you. It is the cross that is the evidence of the love of God for you and for me. And anytime you're tempted to doubt, is God really for me? Look at Jesus. He's suffering. He's hanging. He's bleeding because God is not involved. He's for. God cares. He cares about you. Every single one of you under this tent, he cares about you. He is preparing you for suffering. He's restoring your life. And he's sustaining you. By his grace. So if you're a believer here, would you just swim a little bit in the grace of God this morning? That God is for you. And you might be in the middle of your trial. It's very dark. It's very depressing. So you have to believe this by faith, that God is for me. Some of you are coming out of a trial. You're starting to feel it. It's good. And for those of you who don't know Jesus yet, I would love to introduce you to Christ. He died for you. He rose again for you. And he wants to forgive you of your sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace and mercy in our lives. God, you are for us this morning. You care. You restore. You sustain. You, Lord, you sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And Lord, now we just we just marvel at it. So Lord, would you please encourage every believer who is suffering right now that you will be faithful, you will be steadfast, you will deliver, you will restore. May you encourage them and lift them up today with what they're walking through. And God, for those who don't know Christ yet as their Savior, would you draw them in for the very first time to repent of their sins and to believe in Jesus by faith? God, would you lead them to faith in Christ for the very first time. Lord, help us to respond to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.